Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is December 3rd, 2013. This is episode 1258 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Tuesday. Uh, I've decided I'm going to do a show on the, the next part of the food forest question and answer show today because... Uh, I'm feeling like I want to do that, and uh, I'm in a good mood, and I don't want to go into all the news that's out there, because you know most of it already, and my take on it won't change it. I know you guys like to hear it, but I think it's time to do something positive. Additionally, I'm a little bit of a time crunch, and those shows take a lot more time. I've got interviews scheduled today. I'm stacking up on some things as we head into the holidays, and I'm working on some other stuff. So this is an easier show to do, because I pretty much read the questions and answer them off of the cuff, rather than having to do any research and follow-up. So if you were looking forward to that feedback show today, I, I do apologize. We're going to be skipping that this week. And I don't know, man, maybe, uh, maybe right now going into the, uh, the, you know, kind of the Christmas holidays and all, maybe we need to do a little more. And I don't mean just on the show. I mean, maybe we all need to do a little more of skipping of this stuff. Here's why. What's going to happen is going to happen. We prepare for whatever's going to happen. So worrying about exactly how things are going to break down here and there when we already know the, uh, the, the high level view of why we're, why we have threats in our, in our midst, you know, it might be better suited right now during this time as we get ready to go into that recharge time of the new year to take a few news fasts. I'm doing it. Maybe you can do it along with me. Before I get to your questions on uh, food forestry, let's go ahead and, uh, take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is westernbotanicals.com. Western Botanicals is the place to go for all your herbal needs. If you need something, um, check out Western Botanicals. They have it. If you're not sure what you need, give them a call. Uh, tell them what you're dealing with, and they'll give you some advice and uh, tell you what's worked for other folks. Uh, they're real people that really care about you. Uh, they have everything. They have great pricing. Their service is absolutely outstanding. Absolutely positively outstanding. Wonderful folks, and they are such huge supporters of the show. That this is what they do. All MSB members get their premium membership for free. Now, it normally costs 50 bucks, and you get 25% off everything you ever order from them. Now, that's a good deal, because if you use a lot of herbal supplements like we do, that, that's one of those things, like my membership program, that pays for itself. But since you get it for free, and since it's 50 bucks a year, guys, that pays for your first year of member support brigade. How awesome is that? Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Hey, if you would like to learn how to make knives, then KnifeKits.com is the place to go. Get a kit and just do it. If you need a little guidance, give them a phone call. They'll help you figure out what you need to buy to do your first project. If you want a little bit more uh, assistance on getting that first project done, check out their DVDs and books. They have everything you would ever need to be able to learn the art of making knives. And you can do it from the very simple, easy-to-do, kind of piece-together kit stuff that's Kind of like those models you did when you were as a, a kid. You get all the pieces, you do a little fitting and cutting and sanding and stuff, but in the end, the pieces just go together, you sharpen the blade, you make a sheath for it, whatever. Or, if you're progressing in your craft as a bladesmith and you just want raw materials, maybe mammoth tusk, maybe Damascus steel, maybe camel bone. Did you know you can make a, a knife with camel bone handle? Pretty cool stuff. Check out knifekits.com. From the novice to the master bladesmith and everywhere in between, they have what you need. Check out all their options for making Kydex products as well. Kydex is a great thing to kind of get into as a hobby. It's not hard, 
And uh, you'll find that you can make kydex sheaths for just about anything, kydex casings for just about anything. Uh, they have a massive selection of kydex, every color under the rainbow, every digital camo pattern, you name it, they've got it. Knifekits.com is the source for that. They also give a discount to all members of the support brigade, so check your MSB discount area before you buy from Knife Kits or Western Botanicals to get the best price. On that note, um, the member support brigade, in just those two ways alone, more than pays for itself, and there's uh, discounts to over 40 vendors there now. I've got some new stuff coming for you from 180TAC, and I've got some other things I'm working on getting more discounts put together for you. I'm always looking to increase the value of the member support brigade. It's also a way you can support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT or a paramedic or a firefighter, you do qualify for a service discount. If you email me before, not after you join, before, not after you join, service discount in the subject line, send that email to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. One or two sentences tell me about your service, either what you're doing or what you did of your prior service. If you are already a member and you never got the discount, uh, get in touch with me around renewal time and we'll take care of it for you. All right, with that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. Again, I think that food forestry is something that many people struggle with because it's so radically different from everything we've been conditioned to believe about growing food. Uh, about growing plants, about growing trees. You look at something like an orchard where trees are pruned to a specific size and specific spacings, both uh, laterally and vertically, set out in linear patterns, uh, irrigated a specific way, harvested a specific way, and usually sprayed a specific way. And, and I'm not saying you can't use that pattern and build a food forest, because you can. I've seen it done. Uh, I gave you guys a link already to one up in uh, in, in Canada where it's done just that way. It's a straight, linear, but heavily polycultured food forest. But when you, you get in, see, that would be like a zone two food forest. There's a lot more maintenance that goes into that system than a zone four forest. A zone two forest is is heavily mulched. Uh, you might do some chop and drop, but there's additional mulching going on. Generally, there's irrigation, uh, and not just for establishment. Um, generally there's a lot of pruning and there's a lot of maintaining and you're trying to maintain trees at a certain height or you might even do a, a small scale zone one style urban uh, food forest, forest garden, uh, even mini orchard you might call it. When you get up into true forestry mimicry, which is what we're doing, we're, we're looking at a forest, right? So you're driving down the road, you look over to your left and there's a forest and there might be 20 or 30 different species of trees in there. There's shrubs, there's vines, there's herbs, there's stuff deep inside, but then there's a massive amount of what you would call diversity in structure, shape, and species along the edge. When you walk through a field to a forest edge, it's at that transition L edge that you find the, the most abundance of diversity. And as you look at the way we do food forests, specifically on swales, we're creating massive amounts of edge. And that edge gives us an opportunity to have a canopy, but a, a forward-facing or, or linear-facing edge where we can put in the plants that grow at that forest edge, and we can make that system as large or small as we want. And in that system, it appears chaotic. And you hear numbers like 7 to 1, or what Jeff Lawton does, 9 to 1, support species to main species. So I might have two mimosa trees, a locust, uh, a pagoda tree, and a mesquite, 
and another mimosa, just for, and all that's planted for one apple tree. And, and the mind struggles with that. It's like, how does that work? And remember, the way it works is all those, you know, support species, and they don't always have to be a tree. There'll be seven trees to one tree. It could be a bush, like a, like an autumn olive that's a nitrogen fixer, that some of those will actually be there at the end, or even in the mid-succession, which means the forest advancing forward. But many of those will be dead three years, five years, six years, seven years maximum. They're gone. They've grown, they've been chopped and dropped, and they've grown again, and they've been chopped and dropped, and they've grown again, and they've been chopped and dropped, and they've been grown again, and they've been chopped and dropped. And finally, as the canopy fills up with the main overstory, These trees are choked out. They can't get to the light. Additionally, the fertility has gone up. And as fertility goes up, many of these, these nitrogen-fixing trees, they're not designed to exist in large stands in fertile soil. They're designed to exist in large stands in infertile soil. They're designed to increase fertility. And then they're designed to exist here, there, and about, and around so that they can advance the forest forward by existing in a large stand at an edge, which will then go into fertility cycles, cycle through, and be taken over, right? This is a natural cycle. When people worry about invasives, for instance, they, you know, I talk about using black locusts, and they're like, oh, my God, it's everywhere. That's because you have a big empty space that you're not managing, that's infertile, that's eroded, that nothing else is growing on, and that's a forest saying, I'd like to be here, please. So you have a couple choices. You can, you can put diversity into that system so that it's not just locust. You can just start chopping and dropping the locust, except locust doesn't break down very well. That's part of the issue there. So you can chop and drop all the green, and you got to start pulling wood out using it for fuel or something. You can go in and add the diversity, like I'm saying, Or you can just let nature take its course. If you let locusts take an area over, they won't be there in 50 years. Not, not, in, the, not in a thick stand like you think they would. And, and if you go into wild systems where locusts are native, which is right here in the United States, where people call them now invasive on their own native territory. We're doing that in the sagebrush steppe, which is an ecosystem from Texas all the way up into states like Montana. Sagebrush steppe. It's this brushy sagebrush, you know, edge desert, scrub desert, scrub plain ecosystem. And it's being widely taken over by junipers. And they call the western juniper an invasive species. But the western juniper is indigenous to the sagebrush steppe. So now we're calling a plant in its own space invasive. And what it is is we've damaged these ecosystems So much so that the diversity has been disadvantaged to the advantage of the pioneer. So the juniper can live where the other plants cannot. The locust can live where the other plants cannot. But their existence in that space eventually creates such fertility that they themselves success out. When we build a food forest, what we're doing is manually accelerating that. That locust gets up to where you can barely reach the top of it. And you cut it. That mesquite gets up to where you can barely reach the top of it, and you cut it. Yeah, it's got thorns. Those thorns go to the ground. You do that when rainfall exceeds evaporation, the wet season. And it lays in a big pile, and it rots. And fungus infects it, and fungus eats it. 
Now, locust, you got to, again, you put the green to the ground with locust. Locust is an exception. If you're going to use it, all the woody material needs to be used as fuel wood or tool making or fence posts or, if it's big enough, timber. It is practically, you know, half of its weight is fungicide. Uh, that's why you take a black locust pole, fence pole, put it in the ground, it'll be there in 50 years. So it's, it's, it's the one exception if you're going to use that. You have to understand that. But the hierarchy of nitrogen there is the leaf. Actually, here's the hierarchy of nitrogen. You know the pods? When the seeds are about to, to, to go ape and, and turn and go to maturity, great time to prune it before they're mature enough to replace themselves. That seed pod holds more nitrogen than any other part of the plant. Even more than the nitrogen nodules, you know, per ounce, let's say, against the roots in the ground. And that tree's using a lot of that nitrogen to put nitrogen in the pots. It only releases so much to the surrounding area, even when you prune it or even when you kill it. But there's a massive amount in that pod, the, the, the pea inside the pod, the bean inside the pod. Then the next level of nitrogen is in the pod itself. So that green pod before it turns brown. Then in the leaf, then in the stem, and then in the branch, and then in the trunk. In that order. The furthest out, the most nitrogen. The further in, the more carbon, the less nitrogen. That's not just true of locusts. That's true of any tree. So we can use locusts as a support species. I wouldn't make it a primary one. But it definitely is a good nitrogen fixer. It's hardy. It's a good bee plant. And we have to think differently. And that's where a lot of the questions and concerns and things like that come from um, in, in permaculture and in food forestry because you're trying to take conventional thinking and apply it to unconventional practice. And it doesn't work. So think about those things as I go through some of these questions uh, that we have. And uh, I mentioned Brooke last time. And I uh, said I was tempted to start answering her question and knew I couldn't because I was out of time. Um, hi, Jack. I'm writing you a couple food forest questions in response to your call for those questions earlier. So my questions are, I understand how to start a food forest, how different layers and support trees, etc. But what is the human element in maintaining a food forest other than chopping, dropping, pruning, and harvesting? Um, that's the main one. When you, when you establish a forest, that's, that's the point. The point is that you shouldn't be out there having to do a lot of things. It should be easy maintenance. Now, that's based on just the forest itself. So what we're wanting to do is get out into our forest, make determinations about what trees need to have a haircut, give them a haircut, and put it to the ground. We need to decide over time which of our support trees get to live. Which ones are in certain areas? And we look at things with our species that we allow to live to the canopy as a support tree. And one of the great things about legumes, especially trees like mimosa and pagoda, two great ones, they have very fern-like leaves. And because of this, they let 50-60% of light through their canopy to lower canopy trees, and those trees still get light. So that might, so species might be one thing that we look at when we make that determination to which ones stay around. Location. Some places we planted our support trees really, really densely. They're starting to crowd. We just got to take those out. So it's not just chop and drop. It's also deciding how to atrophy, you know, atrophication of a support species out 
as you allow succession forward. So that's part of it. The other part of it is what type of food forest do you have? If you have a linear swale food forest and you're not looking to eventually close the swales together. And what I mean by that is once you establish a food forest, let's say you put a couple swales in, two big swales. You plant them. You've got this big strip. They're planted into the berms, a few hardy species on the upgrade side, a little bit out in front of the berms. You're planting a few other things. You're edging it out. You've got your herbaceous layer out there, your herbal layer, your rhizome layer. You've got your ground cover going. You've got it all going. You've got this strip like a snake through the landscape. A couple things we can do there. One thing we can do is we can just start every year advancing that forest forward, downgrade, to the next swale, until we don't have a strip. Now we have a cube or a rectangle, right? A square or a rectangle. We've connected the two swales. And we could be advancing the, the second swale forward at the same time, so that by the time that's done, we've, we've you know, doubled, quadrupled our original footprint, or more, depending on how far the swales are apart, if that's the kind of forest we want. So it might be continuing to advance the forest. That could be one way to do it, if we want to forest the whole property. Let's say that we wanted not to do that. We wanted more of like a, a, a hybrid between a true massive forest and an orchard. We wanted to be able to walk through open spaces and pick our fruits and nuts without being completely enveloped. We wanted the strips of forest. And we want the, the centers, the inner swales, the space between our swales open. Now, again, this doesn't have to be, you don't always have to swale. If you have the amount of water you need, and you don't have an erosion problem, and you can just plant trees, you can just plant trees. You can do it just with chickens prepping the ground. You can do it um, the way Martin Crawford does, which is he puts down black plastic and kills all of the ground cover and then plants in the second season and mulches. Do it however you want. But let's say you've got this linear pattern, the strips of forest on contour, just on flat ground where you got enough rain, like in England when they do this, they don't worry a lot about swales, they get plenty of rain, um, you know, whatever that may be for you. Now you have to say to yourself, well, how do I maintain the edge and the inner swale area? So I've got these cells between the lanes, so to speak. And I'm either going to have to mow those, which is least preferable. I can graze them. So I can put animals through them and add to the nutrient cycle and maintain them with that. I can crop them. I can put crops into them and rotate crops through. It's actually a great strategy. You know, I might do something like amaranth in one block, and I might do melons in the next block, and I might do, you know, it doesn't have to be this massive polyculture. you got these clumpy polycultures. So it's surrounded by forest already with massive diversity, edges into all types of herbs and other fruits and vegetables, and I'm, and I'm annual cropping through the, the inner swell. And I do a rotation of that. Or I might annual crop it for the first few seasons when the forest is in its establishment phase and there's not as much shade, and I might move it more into a pasture, an animal. So I, the human element is about deciding where is this going and what do I want it to look like along the way and controlling that. The other thing I'm going to be doing, if I'm keeping that, if I'm just advancing the forest, you know, I'm advancing it with blackberry and, 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 and shrubs and hedges and understory, and a lot of that's atrophying out as the forest gets bigger. So my fruits and herbs and stuff like that, 
keep going forward, and I'm always harvesting those from the edge, and I'm always planting to them, and I'm taking, then I don't want to spend money every year. So I'm taking cuttings from my perennial herbs, root cuttings and, and vine cuttings, and I'm using them to move forward. And hopefully that system starts to do it on its own eventually. Trees start to drop fruit. Fruit starts to, uh, you know, some of the seed gets to the ground. The tree starts to grow. Uh, blackberry spreads its crown, heading toward the open. And the forest will start to advance itself. But I guide it. But if I don't want to advance it, if I want to kind of hold this inner swell open for cell grazing or whatever, then I'm doing an awful lot of playing around with that edge. Harvesting herbs, planting herbs, harvesting berries, planting berry bushes, maintaining them. Blackberries get all big and out of hand, and I prune them way back, and I take all those, those brambles, and I just throw them back into the canopy underneath the trees, and I let them rot. And that way they'll produce again for me next year. I'll be maintaining ground covers, and I'll be playing with things and observing. So it's, it's, it's all about, you know, kind of what, What you're looking for, uh, going on, uh, in regards to animals, I know how important they are to maintaining a forest, pulsing them through to increase fertility, using them to prune plants, using them to feed, using them to feed themselves and clean up some of the abundance eating harvests seem like critical elements in harmonious design. How, how do we manage animals, animals while establishing a forest? Do we want to keep them out of the area until the forest has matured a little bit? Or should they be an integral part of the establishment if they should be included in the startup process? How? Um, about the only way that I want animals to be part of the establishment is to heavily graze them over the area that's going to be established before planting it. And then I want to remove them. The one way that this works really well is what I've already, already talked about today. So I put my swale in, plant my strip of food forest. I graze my animals along the edge of the forest. Every time I graze an area... And, and put, let's say I put chickens in. This, this is how I would do it personally if I had my, if you, having my animals that I have. I would put my geese in it. And if I had larger land, I would put something like cattle or sheep in it. And I would graze them and I would graze about one third to one half of the green. And I would move them forward. I would give a couple weeks for recovery and I would put chickens on it after that. And I would let the chickens take it to the ground. And then I'll move the chickens to the next paddock and the next paddock and keeping the chickens a couple weeks back. You can just do it with chickens. Once that ground is just completely taken down, go in and pull up any additional clumps of weeds and things like that that are still left. There might be a few. Put down a scatter mulch, right? So a mulch a couple inches deep or more. And then plant the trees. And then keep chasing the forest edge across it linearly, and that will advance the forest forward. And then when you get to the end, flip your animals around and bring them back. And this could be years and years and years of this. If you're doing 100 acres, you know, you could take one swale, one big swale, and you could advance the forest way, way down grade before you ever have to put another swale in if you have a long enough swale to do this with. Or you might take your animals and put them through an area you're going to swale before you do it just to improve the biology of the soil, give it a kickstart. I would not ever put the swales in and let the birds on the berm or let the animals on the berm. 
geese could geese you could let in. They do so little damage until you plant, you could let them in. But you want to be planting very quickly. The better way to do it is to go ahead and establish your your forest boundaries, and in your spaces in between your cells, whether between swales or just where you've laid out your forest. In those areas, if you want to include animals, manage that as pasture, and put your animals through those cells. And use like electronet fencing or portable fencing or chicken tractors or pig tractors or uh, hog panels you know, assembled to, to basically create corrals and keep them out of the forest in the establishment phase. They'll destroy it. They'll ruin it. They'll dig things up, especially chickens. Um, cattle and sheep will eat the tops off your trees. You know, your, your fruit trees you just put a lot of money, time, and effort into, and they will destroy them. Now... With chickens and ducks and geese. Once your forest is up, what I mean by up is you've got it up over four or five or six years. And the, 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 the green parts of your trees that you're managing are up where they can't reach it anymore. And your roots are heavy enough and deep enough and the mulch is thick enough and there's enough stuff there for them that when they go in there and scratch about, they don't harm the trees. Then you can free-range them through that forest. Then they need very little management, with some exceptions. If you have shrubs and bushes and things like that on that edge, they can still be destructive in there, but you can control when you let them in. So if you have an area that's heavy in blackberry, you can just keep them out of that area by grazing them into other locations or simply fencing out the area instead of trying to fence the animal into a small area Fence out the area that has a certain time of year where you want to protect it. Harvest your berries. And once you've harvested your berries, now actually encourage them. Get them to do some of that work of bringing down some of that blackberry. Take a big pot, you know, a couple handfuls of barley and, and get your birds over there and throw it in amongst those brambles. And uh, they'll go in there and do a good job of cleaning things up and make your pruning job easier. So it's about understanding the animal's behavior and what you want and matching it to what the ecosystem can handle. A young forest on a small, relatively small acreage cannot handle 20 chickens. They will ruin it. When you put berms in, and you put down your cover crop, and you put straw in it, if it's a thousand yards away from chickens and you let them out, they will go there and they will start digging into the straw. It's what they do. They like that loose stuff. So you have to control them. And when you're establishing a forest, they may go there before you establish it, but... They'll never be there again if they're chickens. Because the chicken's life cycle is probably so short that by the time that system's ready for chickens, it's the chicken's grandkids or at least children that are enjoying the forest those birds helped establish. Um, lastly, how important is the initial implementation of a food forest? Is it feasible to go in after two years and replace certain trees with a different one that might work better? I'm not sure this would even be realistically possible. I wonder how flexible these designs are once implemented. I know that I'm running across new permaculture information every day and new things to incorporate. I can just imagine how much I would want to tweak the design based on new ideas I've run across. Um, this is where you want to design expansion into the system. This is where these linear systems and saying, I can grow the edge go. So all of a sudden, you find out about this wonderful overstory tree, Cornelian cherry, uh, an edible dogwood tree. You go, man, it's a great understory tree. And you go get one because it's an understory tree, and you go into the middle of your forest, you plant it in the shade, and it's like, I don't want to grow here. You suck. 
You put me in the shade. You're like, but you're an understory tree. It's an understory edge tree. So we would find a place we want to bring the forest forward, and we would place that, that tree into that system. Your edge that you can expand is where you're putting new things into your system. Uh, so, yeah, I think that if you really had, like, a desire to get something into the system that wasn't there, and it was kind of fully incorporated, you almost have to go in and open it up then. Uh, two years? Uh, if I was going to do that, what I would look to do is I would want to buy a very mature species, a very mature, mature specimen, you know, a tree that's six, eight feet tall that I'm going to spend more money on and then work that into the design so it's kind of caught up with the other trees because you're not going to be putting in, you know, $100 trees to plant a whole food forest, even a relatively small one. So two to three years in, if you'll make the investment in some of these larger plantings, you could go work them in, yes. Uh, also remember, since you're doing 7-1 with, you know, pagodas and, you know, uh, the, uh, mimosas and, and whatever else you're using for your um, your support species, you could atrophy out a few of those really, really fast, prune them back, prune them, just prune them to the ground, and then put in some of this, these new trees, and then you're going to have to really be aggressive, really be aggressive, because the reason you're using these support trees is because they coppice so regularly. And every time you cut them, like, more comes back. And every time you cut them, more comes back. So you'd have to get in there and really be on it. I mean, you'd have to be cutting those things, like, once every two to three weeks through the growth of the season. But if you keep doing that, eventually your new planting will take over and they'll atrophy out a little faster. So those are some ways you could do that. But the best way, if you want to say, well, I don't know that when I do all these plantings that that's all I want is to plan growth into the equation. So maybe you put your sweat, if you're doing, you're sw putting swales in, you were going to do three. Maybe you do two and go and put your top one right where it was going to go and your bottom one right where it was going to go and make a much larger inner swale and give yourself room to advance the top swale and bottom swales forward to where you can at least double or triple or even quadruple their width over years. And that'll give you plenty of stuff to play around with. It's all about, and what I'm talking about now is an advanced concept. It's what's called stacking in time. I, I'm thinking in decades versus seasons. And I'm planning for the future. And what I'm going to say to myself is, even if I decide I, I love all of the species, and this is all I want to grow, I'm still going to want to make this bigger. But this will leave me the ability to experiment with other species. Uh, so so there's, a, there's the best answer I get. And this is why... I, I could have done almost a whole show on Brooke's question. Um, I, I wanted to answer it last time around. So well done, Brooke. Great question. Next one is actually a pretty simple question. It's from Nate. And Nate says, love the show. Thanks for what you're doing. A question for the Food Forest listener show. Could you recommend some nectar producer species, especially trees for honeybees within a food forest system? I'm in USDA Zone 5. Uh, you'll have to check for your own zone to see what trees you can use. But I, I can tell you right now, Um, the two species I've mentioned already today, honey locust and black locust, are great bee trees. They're wonderful bee trees. They do require management and thought. But I mean, you can plant a small block of black locust um, and coppice them, and you know you can produce tons of fuel wood for yourself and lots of great blossoms for bees. Uh, and, and, and honey locust is another great source for bees. 
Uh, I also mentioned mimosa trees, and I, I don't, I don't think there's a place in America uh, where trees grow that you can't find mimosas that will grow. Mimosas are uh, a beautiful little legume, They're also known as false acacia. They flower very heavily. They're a beautiful tree, and they 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 flower late into the year, and they hold flower for a long time. Uh, Japanese pagoda tree is an is another tree uh, that you might want to look at, um, and it's it's really a great tree. Um, There's tons of stuff we can do, though, for uh, for these for the, for the, the little guys, the bees. Um, in your zone, black cherry will do fine, and black cherry has a beautiful blossom in the spring, so it's an early uh, an early tree. Uh, I would tell you that uh, crab apple uh, is another early tree that will do really really well for them. Um, your choke cherries will do well. Honeysuckle which is not really a tree but a vine, but will grow and, and gild with your trees and fix nitrogen is another option. Um, all of your fruit trees, cherries, plums, uh, you, know, you name it, uh, are, are quite useful. Sumac, uh, which is considered a, a trash tree in a lot of areas, is actually pretty daggone good as a bee tree, uh, and it holds flower for a long time before the berries fully set. And I've seen bees all over sumac. And sumac is not poison unless it's poison sumac. And they're very, very different plants. Uh, they're not even really the same species. Um, and, and make sure you're also realizing that all of your, your shrubs and, and everything else that goes in there is part of, of supporting bees. But the reality is if you plant a well-diversified food forest and you include all seven layers, you're going to have bees going, doing head spins. Because it's going to give them everything that they need. Uh, but those are all some really good ones. There's some other stuff. And realize as you look at support species, generally you get quite a bit of option as far as flowers. Uh, your nitrogen fixtures generally flower well. Uh, and you get into stuff that everybody worries about being invasive. So two other trees that are just like grade A number one enemies and do have to be managed right uh, so that they don't end up taking over an area, but are autumn olive. And uh, Russian olive. Both of those are actually great species uh, for your, your bees as well um, and would do fine in your area, maybe too well. Um, but that brings up, you know, uh, along the same, in the same species is a thing called a gumi, D-O-U-G-O-U-M-I, gumi elegantis uh, multiflora, which is related to autumn olive and related to Russian olive, but it's actually a lot better tasting Uh, and it has a very similar habitat. It would be a good plant for bees. It would go in your shrub layer uh, and grow into a pretty sizable shrub, be extremely productive, uh, fix nitrogen, and in your zone five, it would do, do very well. So the reality is if you establish a food forest in a zone five, you're going to have plenty of opportunities for, uh, for, for, for nectar for bees. So the next one comes from Alice. It says, what is your top list of your favorite hardiest support trees? That will practically uh, that will grow in a temperate climate. It's important to have more than a couple of these species of sports trees. Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't want to go with one. If I had to go with one, it would probably be uh, mimosa, uh, a jubilissum or something like that is how jubrison. Um, it's a, an awesome tree. It produces a large amount of biomass. It's a very good nitrogen fixer. It's a pretty tree. Um, It's easy to chop and drop. 
it, it doesn't really become invasive. Some people call it invasive. That's just because it grows places on its own. But you never see it do something like autumn olive or uh, uh, Russian olive where they, they're like, there's just like a grove of nothing but mimosas. It's just mimosas grow in a lot of places. A very hardy tree. And they'll grow in most of the country. And they're very, very overlooked by permaculturists in temperate climates. And what makes them particularly attractive is the cost savings. So if you can find one, and odds are you can, you know, if you go pick the seeds, they grow from seed. And quite rapidly, um, you know, they'll be little in the first year, but they'll be up, you know, waist high in the second, and they'll go pretty quick for you. Um, and you don't need to do what's called stratification to get them to grow. Some literature says you do, but you don't. Stratification is where a seed needs to be put in a cold you know, just above freezing temperatures for 90 days or so before it'll stratify and, and actually break dormancy and grow. There's two ways to grow a uh, mimosa seed. And one is you find a mimosa tree before it goes into full seed. And before the seed actually, the pods get completely dried out. When the seeds are, you feel them and the seeds are in there, they're fully formed. They're still a little bit green and they're wet. You take the, you start picking off pods. Take a whole pod, shove it in a pot. If more than one comes up, kill the kill a couple of them and leave the one you want. And that's the easiest way if you have the time right to do it. Right now, you're past that time. But if you can find a mimosa tree right now, especially in the south, there's probably still lots of seed hanging on it. And you just go pull them off. And then what you want to do is you heat water up to about 180, 190 degrees. That sounds crazy. You put your seeds into a container and pour your, your, your hot water on top of them and let them sit overnight. Uh, the next day, all of the ones that are swollen, the, there's a, a coating that gets on them. And that means that hot water has dissolved that coating. And if it's swollen, swollen up, you plant the swollen ones and they'll germinate 60 to 80% or better for you. And you can treat the ones that didn't swell up with hot water again. Or you can get like a, a, a metal nail file. And just hold the seeds one at a time and just, in a couple spots, scrape into them. Put them in water. The ones that swell up, the water's gotten in there and, the, and, the, and it'll break and it'll, it'll grow for you. It's, it's probably one of the best. I wouldn't rely on one, but it's probably one of the best. Another one I've mentioned is pagoda tree, Japanese pagoda tree. Uh, I like that. These are both mentioned, uh, by the way, right now on Permaculture Global, I have like half of the project written up. Um, and into species selections and things like that. I'll put a link today. But it looks like crap, honestly, because they put it in this narrow column. So when I get it finished, I'll, I'll drop down this long thing I'm doing a little at a time on there to a summary, and I'll put a link to a document with this entire food forest project laid out. Um, but those are probably the two. And let me tell you, I'll read right out of my own document here what I have to say about these two trees Uh So that you're getting it exactly as, and I didn't think about this, I didn't even look at this question until now, and I was actually working on this document last week. So here you go. Uh, support legume trees, and this is where I'm not giving the list, but going through some of them and why we picked them. A great deal of thought went into creating a list of diverse and useful support species for this project. We feel one of the most promising is the Japanese pagoda tree, Sephora japonica. This tree has a fairly quick growth rate, it fixes nitrogen, accumulates large amounts of biomass, is deciduous and is considered a desirable landscaping tree. This tree also allows a lot of light penetration, about 60% even when mature, due to its leaf structure and propagates easily from seed requiring no stratification period. 
There are a huge number. Uh, there are a huge number of components above, but one note must be made before continuation. That is that this species of pagoda is Sephora japonica, not Strempelagblomblorium japonica. I can't pronounce the ste. Pelobium japonica. There's a, there's two pagoda trees. This is important because the stepololium uh, has not been shown to produce nitrogen in conjunction with rhizobacteria uh, and fixing the bacteria on their roots, whereas Sephora have. So if you're going to buy seed or get the tree, you want Sephora japonica is what you're looking for here, guys. As to the selection of this tree, again, much is at play. First is that it is easily propagated from seed, will allow us to provide seed and seedlings for other projects for free to others. However, given the tree is marketable as a landscaping tree, both seed and seedlings can be a viable source of income. And basically what I'm saying there is I'm willing to give away seed and seedling once I'm established. You're looking at three to four years from now and producing large amounts of seed and growing seedlings of these things to others for free so that they can plant food for us. But I would be also willing to sell that on the open market because of its desirability as a landscaping tree. It's just something that you should think about if you're trying to establish sustainability in a system as income sources. Uh, additionally, the open nature of a canopy, which allows for reasonable light penetration to the subcanopy, canopy makes this an ideal tree for us to leave one or two of in the long-term canopy. Remember earlier, guys, I said that some long-term support trees we would choose based on certain factors. So that's one. We'll, we'll leave a, a pagoda tree or two in this system because they let light through and because they have a seed yield for us. This will be sufficient for massive seed stock. Two of these trees, God, the, the seed, unbelievable. Another aspect of this tree is that it blooms both heavily and late in the season. Hence, it will be quite beneficial for the bees which will be brought onto our property this spring. Isn't that neat how it just answers the question that was asked before? And really, I did write this last week. Much of, this, much of the above can also be said about our other primary support tree, mimosa tree, Ajubrilissum. This tree is extremely hardy throughout much of the nation and certainly in our climate. We are fortunate to find a large, wild-growing specimen in a nature center less than five miles from our property. The genetics of this plant should be optimum as it has grown, it has grown large on its own with no support. We'll also bring in some other seed to diversify genetics of our seed stock. Uh, mimosa provides many great attributes. It grows rapidly. Uh, and like S. japonica, doesn't require cold stratification for germination. It can be produced in large numbers and provided for others for their projects. Like S. japonica, though, it is a desirable species for many in landscaping. Trees sell on the, on the market for an average of $10 for a two-foot tree and as high as $50 for a well-established five- to six-foot tree. Once again, there is a large amount of space, function, and time stacking in these two species, while many permacultures struggle with finding good support species in warm and cool-tempered cl climates These two trees seem to be exceptional options. I'll go on. Um, black locust is another example of a tree we have selected for more than just its nitrogen-fixing ability. While wood and heating needs are minimal, we do have some need of wood for both cooking and heating. Much of this need can be handled by black locust. We have plans for a small stand on another location of the property. The chop and drop from the food forest can augment these needs in the establishment phase of the property. Black locust isn't really a great chop and drop tree. 
if used for its woody material, as it is one of the slowest to break down woods known. However, its green material is high in nitrogen and breaks down readily. So we'll be dropping the green and harvesting the woody components for other needs. This tree is also another exceptional bee attractor with a reputation for producing excellent honey. While as much has been made of black locust becoming invasive, this is due to mismanagement, not the tree itself. Like many locusts, it's a pioneer that will fill um, uh, empty, unmanaged uh, spaces and survive where other trees do not. Um, I want to give you the other trees that are in my list so far, and this is tentative for my support trees. Um, but just so you know everything that I have in the design right now. So what I have are pagoda tree, uh, mimosa tree, pearl acacia, Siberian pea shrub, which I don't think is going to work, but I've been told it can work this far south. So I have some seed to hell with it. We'll plant it and see what happens. Eastern redbud, which I am probably going to remove. The more I research about eastern redbud, the more I find conflicting information about whether or not it fixes nitrogen. And even though it is a leguminous species, it appears by the preponderance of evidence that it does not fix nitrogen. Um, and it doesn't have anywhere near the biomass yield that pagoda or mimosa do. So I'm probably going to remove that from the design. Black locust, honey locust, and autumn olive. Um, those are all things that I have planned. Um, so th if I plan to use it, then obviously it's, it's, it's in my list, so to speak. And I'm researching some other things. But while we're on this, whenever you get into this, you get into the things about, oh, that's invasive or this is invasive. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read for you my notes on invasive species. And this is in that support species part of my document. And uh, it's just like a, a final note to add. And I, I talk about um, invasive species and mismanagement during the, the species profiles. But this is kind of how I wanted to end it because I, I hear so much about this. And I see so many people with conventional eyes not understanding what invasive really means. So, final note on invasive species. While we realize many will disagree with us, we find the term invasive species to be inaccurate in most but not all instances. There is no doubt, for instance, of the damage done by kudzu in much of the South, but many other so-called invasives are, in my view, doing more to repair damaged ecosystems rather than damaging healthy ones. For instance, are these species really doing harm when they displace massive monocrop-style stands of pine, which lack diversity? Stands which are not typical of a natural ecosystem, but rather the results of heavy timber harvest and land mismanagement. Most of these species are pioneers, which naturally occur in edge environments and success out over as large overstory takes over and shades them out in time. We feel, in this way, we feel that many people who claim these plants are, quote, damaging natural systems, end quote, are actually saying that they are altering unnatural systems and moving them toward forest succession. In the end, they may be, may be more of a blessing than a curse. As an example, western juniper is now considered an invasive species in sagebrush steppe ecosystems, vilified for, quote, choking out other species, end quote. This is in spite of the fact that western juniper is a native species, in sagebrush steppe ecosystems. It is clear that Jupiter, J Juniper didn't invade the sagebrush steppe ecosystem and damage it. Rather, man has damaged the sagebrush steppe in such a fashion that advantages Jupiter, Ju Juniper over many other plants in the ecosystem. Hence, to fix the problem, this ecosystem requires the restoration of balance, 
not the eradication of one of its own native species. In the end, our view of species labeled as invasive should be chosen and managed with care, but not simply avoided. If you disagree, again, please consider an example where a native species is now labeled as invasive in its own native habitat. The same can be said with species such as mesquites and locusts, again, in their native habitats. Ironically, black walnut often exhibits more tendency to take over an area than black locust, which it guilts quite well with. Yet black walnut, which is allopathic, which actually means not only does it choke out, but it suppresses the growth with juglone, which is one of its uh, chemicals it produces. It actually chemically prevents other plants from growing. So black walnut, which is allopathic, isn't labeled as invasive simply because it represents an economic yield as high-quality timber. So what I'm saying there, guys, is if black walnut wasn't such a high-valued timber crop, they'd call it invasive and try to get rid of it, even though it's performing the exact same way. My last part on this. I wonder if modern man would have called chestnuts invasive prior to the eastern chestnut blight. At that time, chestnuts existed in such numbers that they were loaded into carts with coal shovels in the fall for livestock feed. So were chestnuts invasive? I say no and paraphrase Bill Mollison in saying we use 100% native species. All of them are native to planet Earth. So I, I just want to talk about that because I know whenever you bring up an invasive species, people start going crazy. But what is invasive? Uh, when you see something like autumn olive put a huge stand into a place, it's because there's nothing else there. Or what's there is singular in, in mindset. Um, it's, it's, it's like the pine beetle. The pine beetle isn't killing the pine trees. The pine trees, where the pine beetle is attacking them, are at maturity. They've been there long enough. And it's time for that system to success into something new. And because the pines aren't coming down to the forest floor where the fungus can eat the pine tree, the beetle's taking the fungus to the pine tree. Pine beetles do not kill pine trees. They don't. It's hard to believe, but they don't. Pine beetles go in the pine tree complete their life cycle and get popped out in a little pellet and go off and do their pine beetle business. Behind, they leave a blue fungus on their feet, gets in the tree, and when the tree puts the sap over the hole, it seals the fungus in, and the fungus decomposes the tree while it's still alive, kills it within six months, and eventually rots it to the ground where the rest of the fungus take over. So because the, the, the tree won't come to the fungus, fungus is going to the tree. It's a, it's a, it's a, It's an ecosystem moving forward. And the reason it's not successing properly is because we've damaged it by managing it as a monocrop. These systems were never supposed to be this way. And it's, when, when you see an invasive species take over an area, it's, it's exactly the same thing. When I was a kid, we had this huge, massive stripping bank where they had strip mine at the back of our property. It was covered with all kinds of trees and bushes and shrubs, and we cut it down. Uh, and cleared it out so that you could go up there and, and do stuff. And uh, it took my, my, my father, my uncle, and I uh, several weeks with chainsaw and other things to clear this bank off. And on the back side of it, south-facing side, locust sprang up all by itself, black locust. And it was like this thicket of locust. And this would have been in 1986. Now, if you believe that locust is invasive and will choke everything out. Right now, there should be locust growing all over that bank, right through my dad's yard, up and through his house and everywhere. And you know what? If you go to where those locusts were and no one ever cut them, there's almost none of them left. 
There's a few big ones and a diverse polyculture of birch and maple and blackberry and wild strawberry and it just successed forward. Now, it took a long time. 1986, and when I saw that system, it would have been about 2004. So 86, that's 18 years for that to happen. And it's not like there's no locusts there. They're just not monocropped anymore. But if I understood what I do now back then, we could have controlled and managed that system, and it could be further along. Invasive species are more accurately corrective species, in my opinion. Now, they can cause a lot of damage in certain places and in certain times and in certain ways. And you can't use them recklessly. But it's no different than a gun. A gun can put food on the table, save a life, or commit a murder. Species of plants in of themselves are not evil. They need proper management, proper application. But when you see any single species completely dominate an area. Usually it means something's wrong. I even think that's true of kudzu. But I don't know how to, to, to wrangle that one. I don't know how to fix that one. So I would be very leery, and you'd probably get shot by somebody if you spread kudzu to an area where it already wasn't existing. But I, I think maybe what we should be doing is using the kudzu where it is. And I, I'm willing to bet if they stopped fighting it, that eventually it would success itself out because it hasn't covered all of China, which is where it's from. And it functions in its native habitat as part of an ecosystem. It's when we bring these, these plants, these hardy plants, into an unbalanced system and they go haywire trying to collect, correct the balance that we get into trouble. Um, I, I can tell you the, the questions you guys ask and are, are good because the next question is also in my document that I have sitting right here in front of me. Um, what specific support trees might I put next to pecans, and what sort of pecans should I grow in the northeast climate, New Jersey? Also, when planting seven support trees, per your example, do they make a skeptagon around the food tree? How far apart, approximately, should they be interplanted to? I was thinking of doing the Judas tree as supports your thoughts. So um, let's talk about how you arrange your support trees. To me, you arrange them wherever they fit. I'm not making skeptagons. Um, some of my support trees I may pull out of the berm and into the inner swale a few feet to fit them in. Some of your hardier support trees you might even plant on the upgrade side of the swale, a few up there, kind of spade them around. You fit them in where they fit in. And remember, they're not being fit in so that they'll be there five to six years from now. They're going to be gone. Right? They're going to be gone and go away. As for your support trees for your, your pecans, uh, I, I don't think you should really get that specific, but I'm going to talk from my document here in a minute about guilds around pecans and, and some cool things I've discovered as I've done this design about pecan and its allopathic tendencies and how you can uh, deal with that. But a young pecan isn't going to actually produce that much uh, juglone, which is the, 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 the substance that is allopathic. It's actually... The shell uh, case, not the casing, but the shell covering uh, that the stains and it's nasty that produces most of that. So it's that drop year after year after year that creates this barrier around the tree 
So when it's very young, it's not going to be very allopathic. So during the establishment phase, you don't really have to worry that much about your support species. They're going to be up against it. So go nuts with it. Um, the next thing is what varieties. There's a Northern James or a James Pecan, something like that to that effect that's, that's pretty hardy to the north. And a, uh, another one, uh, there's a Wisconsin strain that this little farm uh, called Magic Land Farms has, and they'll sell you, they're basically nuts. They call them seeds, but a pecan seed is a nut. And you can buy 10 for 8 bucks or 40 for 20 bucks. And especially in northern climates, I'd highly recommend that you think about planting pecans from seed or buying seedling pecan trees, trees that were not grafted, that are grown on their own native rootstock, um, because they're going to be much hardier. And that's true of all trees if you can get an option like that. If they're grown from seed, they're going to be stronger trees. They take longer, but they have much more powerful root systems. So uh, you might want to consider ordering from these guys. I'll put a link in the show notes to them today uh, for you. But again, James... Uh, or any pecan from the north that's uh, not a grafted tree, if you start it from seed, uh, it should do well. There's also uh, a, a tree that a gal named Jen brought to, uh, didn't bring the tree, but brought me some nuts. They look like little pecans, and supposedly this tree is called a white hickory. Tai um, Tai Nursery sells these seedlings, um, but I've heard terrible things about their customer service, so order at your own risk. I'm not really sure if white hickory is a hybrid or what, because when I look up native species of hickory, I don't see a white hickory. I see mocker nut and pig nut and shell bark and shag bark and things like that. I don't see white. These look like little pecans. She's in Maryland. I'm sure they would do well in New Jersey. Uh, so that would be another thing you could stand in there. But the big concern with pecan and with black walnut and with certain other trees yeah, like walnuts uh, and, and, and heart nuts is the allopathic or ability to suppress the growth of other trees. And when you're putting them into a food forest, I don't think you should not use trees like pecan and walnut because they're such great trees. But I think you should think about the allopathic nature. Now, the truth is, the better your job you're doing of taking care of the soil, the less of a problem it's going to be. And generally speaking, these trees are mostly allopathic under their drip line anyway. So as soon as you're outside of their shade, which is considerable, it's not as big of an issue. But in establishment, uh, and in tighter plantings like a food forest, you might want to consider some things. So let me read something to you out of my document, and then I'll tell you how I came up with it. And when I wrote this, what I did is I listed every tree, every herb, not every, but most of the herbs, most of the trees, most of the shrubs, uh, by variety and type. Uh, Latin name, including, and some to make sure people are not confused. And um, then I went through each section, like so fruit and nut trees, uh, support trees, and picked a few and explained why the ones that were more interesting, uh, because to explain them all would be excessive. Um, but there is, in, in, in this, some stuff that I think is really germane to this question. So germane, it's, it's kind of ironic that it was asked. So here we go. As pecans were desired and are known to produce juglone, which is an allopathic to many species, we needed a juglone buffer area. Two trees known to do well around black walnut, which is far more allopathic than pecan, are mulberry and pawpaw. Pawpaw uh, is, uh, uh, is best established in full sun, 
but once established, it does well as understory. So we chose to place a pawpaw adjacent to our pecans, followed by a mulberry. So what we've done is taken two trees that gild well with pecan or black walnut, actually gild well with black walnut, and kind of used them as a buffer area for pecan's uh, allopathic tendencies. And pawpaw is this reputation for growing really, really slow and taking forever to produce. But it's because people plant it in the shade because it does well in the shade. Well, it does well in the shade once it's established. It grows very slowly in the shade, so you want to put it in a forest early where it's not shaded, get it up and producing, and then it can get shaded and it'll still produce. It also does well with, with pecan and black walnut. Why? It's native to these same places. Okay, Mulberry is also another plant that does well, so I decided to put those nearest the pecans and then go and switch to other plants which have a bigger problem with the allopathic tendencies. So that might be something that you'd want to consider doing. Now, the way this happened is an interesting story. So I'm watching uh, Food Forest 2 that came with the PDC DVDs from Jeff Lawton's PDC course. And I see Jeff showing a pecan next to a mulberry. Ding, a light goes on. Maybe I should move the mulberries in my design over to where the pecans are. If Jeff puts them there, then I should put them there too. Except maybe they just ended up there. Then I got Paul Wheaton's permaculture playing cards, and I'm going through them. By the way, I am embedded. My name is embedded in the design on the Ace of Clubs, if you have those cards. If you can look hard enough, you'll find my name embedded on the Ace of Clubs, which is a Hugo Culture card, so I guess I'm now the Ace of Hugo Culture. Uh, but I get to the, the mulberry, and a little footnote at the bottom of the card says, Mulberry is one of the few trees that can be grown along with black walnut. Okay, I've got my attention. Now that's going to go in there. So as I'm researching that, um, I find a page that lists a lot of other plants that do well with black walnut. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well today. Uh, and there's things that you would expect. Black cherry. Well, black cherry is going to do well. Why? Because it's native to the same climate and same environments. That, so it's adapted. Uh, that's what it is. The black walnut stands in forests with hickories, with oaks, with black cherry, with crab apple, uh, with many other things. So then you look at this and you see, well, it damages. And he said, well, this page also tells you what it damages. It damages apples and cherries. Well, what's it really damaging? I mean, do you think that like this black walnut or a pecan or a hickory, these are all members of the same family and they produce the same allopathic chemical, juglone, uh, just in less and less numbers as you go down the spectrum. Pecan, uh, generally less than black walnut, and hickory about the same as pecan. Um, do you think that it's like shooting darts of this stuff across? No, what it's doing is it's, it's, it's dropping the, the production of this to the soil. It's seeping into the soil, and its highest concentrations are right around the tree. So places where crab and black walnut and things like that were growing side by side, crabs became more and more tolerant over evolution, and the ones that could do the best around black walnuts survived and stayed in the system, along with hickories, which are the same species and tolerated because they produce it, um, and along with black cherry. Now, why then does black cherry tolerate it, do well with it even? And so does crab apple, but cultivated cherries and apples die. Well, uh, or get sick, or don't do well. Because they're on grafted rootstock. So I think 
if we were to develop rootstocks off of, let's say, black cherry and choke cherry and graft cultivated varieties onto wild rootstock, that the problem would go away. And the same if we take wild crabapple rootstock and graft known varieties of apples to it, we'd end up with a stronger tree. And yes, will it sucker and some of the old stuff, but that's not bad. Hell, I plant crab apples in my system specifically to help with pollination. So that that's really an awesome question. And I'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes. Um, and this is why I love questions. Sometimes questions give me answers because the last question uh, was asked was about the Judas tree. Cirrhosis uh, sulequestrum, uh, which is a tree that Judas was uh, reportedly to have hung himself on, which may or may not be true. A very beautiful tree, uh, lots of flowers on it. Um, and I'm sitting here on the Plants for the Future database looking at it. And it is a leguminous tree. And uh, it, it's again, it's quite a beautiful tree. It grows up to 12 meters, uh, but obviously can be pruned not to get that big. It has some actual edible uses, it says. Uh, uh, and those are the flowers and the seed pods. I don't know that much about that, so I would, uh, I would you know, go with the ease and learn more about that because I'm just learning about this tree now. But here's what it says. The flowers can be used raw with a Swedish acid-like taste. They're a nice addition to salad ball. Flower buds are picked and used as a condiment. Uh, the seed pods can be eaten raw. And there's no claim to anything about a medicinal use of this tree. Um, it is hardy, according to Dave's Garden, uh, from, I think, let me move back to there real quick to make sure I, I got you right there, from USDA 5A to 9B, that includes me. So this plant actually might be going into my list of support species. So it, that's an awesome question because now I have a new tree that I can research. Uh, so that came from Charlie, uh, which were some great questions. And, uh, man, I've got so many more questions, but we're at an hour uh, again. Uh, maybe I'll try to do one more here and, uh, and and then wrap up for the day, and we'll have to keep continuing this because uh, I'm learning a lot as I answer this. So, again, the Judas tree, we're going to look at that one, and uh, I might work that into my design. So let's go ahead and do that. We'll take one more question. Um, this one actually came on the blog, and I ended up dumping it into the folder because it was so specific to this. Um Sorry, should have added. Wheaton always says, add texture to the landscape. Could you expand on that at all? Usually it seems like he's specifically talking about hula culture, but I'm sure there's more to it than just that. Uh, Paul Wheaton and hula culture, it's like peanut butter and jelly. Uh, there's probably nothing Paul Wheaton loves more than a good hula culture pie, uh, pile other than a huckleberry pie. Uh, and Paul is talking a lot of times when he says texture in a landscape about hula culture and the conventional make a pile of wood, put a big pile of dirt on it, 70-degree angle, Sepp Holzer style, hula mount. Uh, that's, that's part of it. That's not all he means, and it's not certainly what I mean when I say texture to landscape. Texture can be subtle or dramatic and have marked effects. So one thing you might do with a piece of property is, and you might say, well, why wouldn't you do a hoogle culture if you were going to do what you're going to say? Uh, maybe you don't have enough woody material to make it happen. It would be one example. But berms. Uh, you could put berms around a property, over, and they could be huge. If you have the fill, the material somewhere available, you could do a berm that's, that's 12 feet high. And you can use that to completely block wind in an area that needs the wind blocked or to funnel wind in an area that needs a breeze. Uh, that would be one thing. 
You could do swales or texturing a landscape. Swales were taking soil down and piling it up on the downgrade side. Uh, the, the, the piece of land, this, uh, it's about three quarters of an acre. It's actually dot seven acres to be exact. Um, that I'm doing this food forest on was absolutely textureless. Other than the live oaks. So vegetation can also be part of texture. But it was almost textureless. It's, it's, you know, 30 feet across in the inner swale, you're dropping four inches. It looks flat to the eye. You have a hard time even knowing which way the land slopes unless you really get back and look at it over a large distance. You'd look down at your feet and say it's flat. So with those swales in there, now there's the swales and there are these berms and there's texture. And that texture does so many things. It creates microclimates. The temperature where the swale meets the ground on the downgrade side is cooler than the temperature at the top of the swale. Little cool pockets, little shade pockets. It, it, it has an effect on wind. Um, actually, cold air will, will, will go downgrade and sit in the swale And it'll actually get colder at the bottom of the swale than up on the top of the berm. So there's actually frost. You can dam up frost. Or in my light frost, you actually provide some frost protection. It has an effect on wind. When we plant the trees, the trees themselves will add texture. So texture is about anything that changes the landscape from flat and boring. It affects things like nutrient runoff, uh, erosion. And wind cycles. So another example of putting texture into a landscape that can be very, very subtle would be a key line plow. So with key line plowing, we, we plow just barely off contour. And then back and forth, so they inter, the, the plow lines interlock. And water moves slowly up and down like Plinko. But this is more for a conventional cropping system. We could do key line plowing. And that's also putting texture into the landscape. Very subtle textures that you don't see. One of the things I'm thinking about doing is in my inner swales, especially where the sills spill out, putting very small berms in a baffle pattern. Something that you would, you, if you rode your tractor across it slowly, you'd barely notice. If you went across it fast, you'd be like, duh, 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 right? Like little speed bumps. Just so as water goes out the sill and flows down to the next swale, it kind of disperses a little bit. And just doesn't get up ahead of steam. When we look at our west pasture, which I'd very much like the food forest as well, but I just don't think it's practical based on the soil depths there. It's much worse and much rockier than the landscape that we just excavated. And Joe and I have thought about taking the excavator in there and only taking maybe one or two inches of soil and pulling it back over a few feet and putting very low berms again you could drive over. Little micro-swales you could drive over. You know, you have to slow down. That's not a bad thing. Just to stop the erosion and to start to seep in some water and managing it more as pasture. As I think about that, the excavator we rented had a little front blade. It was like a little mini dozer. And you could push for about a good six feet before you push too much. And it might be easier to just sit on the uphill side of the grade, put that blade down so it's just an inch, just drive it forward, Drive it back, put it down, drive it forward, drive it back, put it down, drive it forward, drive it back, put it down, drive it forward, lift it up. I was leaving that step out, huh? Drive it forward, lift it up, pull back, reset, and just kind of back and forth and just shove the dirt into this little micro swale and put in way more of those than we would put in mainframe swales and start 
bringing in free organic matter, which is bags of leaves. It's an acre, but leaves are free. Just keep piling them in there and piling them in there and just graze the chickens and the geese through there over and over again and start to build soil. Hopefully to the point where you almost can't see the texture anymore because we've actually, we'll build the inner swells up at such a subtle difference. Two inches of soil, we might build that a year and then do it again. And at that point, we've built four inches of soil by using subtle texture. So when, when Paul talks about putting texture in a landscape, Paul's a big guy that likes big things and big ideas. And he is usually thinking of hygge culture mounds or big swales or berms. But understand that texture is just about alterations that give you desired results and control things that currently aren't being controlled. And what I mean by control that which is not currently being controlled is when you have just a slope and there's no texture, then when water comes, erosion happens, period. But when we put texture in and we control the flow of water, we, we halt, stop, slow down, what have you, the erosion. And if we think about how we do that, if we're stopping erosion, we're probably creating deposits, Those deposits are highly nutrient-rich, and those deposits can be hardest to be planted into. Whereas if we have a great big open field, and we have plants or trees or bushes or shrubs growing, and in the winter, this huge wind just comes through and hammers the hell out of them, we can put a relatively small berm up close and lift that wind over them. Or if we want to do a bigger job, we need to put a bigger berm, have a bigger effect over a greater distance, to minimize that wind. But we have to be, again, we have to be careful. If I take a big berm and put it downgrade in a cool climate with a big upgrade, when the cold weather comes in, that cold air will just flow down because cold goes down, low to the ground, the coldest air, it'll go up against that berm and it'll dam up a frost pocket. And the cold, and it'll freeze out an area colder than other areas around there. Sometimes these are natural phenomena. When I lived in Arlington, I had a pretty big backyard, about a third of an acre. I had this depression in it. I didn't put it there. It was just there. And on days that were not supposedly frost days, days where the temperature only went down like 34 overnight, I'd come out in the morning, and inside that depression, everything would be frozen. It would be frost on the grass. You look all around the rest of the yard, and everything's not touched by frost, but the coldest air conglomerated there and, and frosted out the area. So texture can do great things and it can produce microclimates. You just have to think about the microclimate you're going to produce and do you really want that. It can be big or it can be subtle and gentle. It's all again about artistry. What we're really doing here is we're painting a landscape with function and form versus painting a landscape with paint and canvas. With that, I'm going to wrap up today. I have a ton more questions. I'll do another show on this. Um, I might save some of these. I was just talking to Jeff Lawton today by email. And I might save some of these for him, some of the ones that are a little bit more complex uh, for the next time I have him on. But I'll definitely do this again. If you want to add to this, this is a deep subject. And again, I'm learning as much as I'm teaching. Send me a question, Food Forest Question for Jack in the subject line. Food Forest Question is really enough. Food Forest Question in the subject line. Send the email to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and I'll try to get to it in a special continuation show like this in the future. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.